Perhaps like me, you can't remember a time when tribalist, tribalist tendencies have been more pronounced. Fueled now by awesome and invasive technology, we've splintered into tribal collections of passionate like-mindedness like never before. And this cuts across all cultural forms, political parties, churches, clubs, corporations, sports teams, independent schools, fraternities, and most organizations with a bumper sticker express facets of this tribalist tendency. Some benign, but, but many others quite toxic. And it's hard to step out of this toxicity. We seem hardwired to slice and dice the world into the saved and the damned, however we define that, allowing ourselves the privilege of being among the saved, of course. That's the end game of tribalism, after all, the amassing of power and privilege for the select group. When considering how this can work out in church, I like to tell a story from my first year in ministry, a time that Honestly, as I was thinking about it this week, seems quite tame by comparison to current conditions. My first pastoral appointment was to a little church located in a small Connecticut town. And true to form, of all that divides us, mine wasn't the only little church in that small town. Across the street was the little Catholic church. A block over was the Little Trinity Lutheran Church. A few streets beyond that was the Little Congregational Church. And lastly, at the crossroads of this small town was the independent Bible Church that proudly flew a flag of fundamentalism. Now, all the ministers, excepting from this last church, were quite friendly, as were the congregations, and occasionally we would band together for some community-wide event. Our most significant joint undertaking while I was there involved the resettlement of a large extended Cambodian refugee family. Pooling the resources of our congregations, we were barely able to handle the project. And realizing we could use all the help we could muster, we decided that I should approach the pastor of the independent church to see if they would like to join us in this project. I was the designated asker. So one Saturday morning, I walked over to the parsonage and knocked on his door. And after exchange of greetings, I launched into an invitation for his church's participation. And without so much as a nanosecond of hesitation, he responded that he didn't see how that would be possible, given that we did not agree on many points of theology. Well, taken aback by his quick, curt reply, I asked if there was anyone he could throw in with on a joint project like this. And he scrunched up his face and thought hard and turned his head this way and that. And then he said, well, there was one church about an hour and a half away in the westerly direction. And then he thought of another one about an hour away in the easterly direction. But then catching himself, 
he added with a chortle, well, actually, they probably couldn't work together after all because the minister there believed the millennium came before the rapture and the Bible was clear the rapture came first. Now, for those of you in need of a little primer on the conflicts in fundamentalism, the rapture and millennium refer to the so-called end times and whether or not a period of a thousand years of peace comes before or after the saved are taken from the earth. I was dumbstruck. Eventually, I said, you mean to tell me that disagreement would prevent you from working together, say, to resettle the family of Cambodians? He shook his head, yes. And I backed out the door, mumbling some incoherent things, stumbled down the steps, and began my lifelong fascination with the human propensity to draw boundaries of exclusion. And I suppose this simply could have confirmed my opinion of certain fundamentalists, but actually instead, it had the effect of planting a pebble in my shoe. I began to wonder how if it was possible, I also reflected a similar pattern, only very well pleased with myself that I wasn't nearly as obvious in my arrogance as my ignorant brother down the street. Because fundamentalist, or what I'll refer to here as tribalist tendencies, actually come in many varieties. They wear all sorts of clothes. Liberal, and conservative alike, Republican and Democrat, Christian and Muslim and Jew. All express at times persons with exclusionary opinions and practice that favor those in the know, those that have the special advantage those who through some enlightened state or birthright or heritage challenge the essential validity of others. For instance, what is white nationalism other than a tribalist outburst on hyperdrive? Recently, I had a surprisingly frank conversation with an older white woman active in her church, not here, we were talking about faith and racism. She was surprisingly open and transparent. After a while, she finally admitted that probably, well, we really should try to see everyone the same and that maybe the next generations would be able to accomplish that. Her real point being that she actually had no intention of addressing her own culpability in the matter. She was quite comfortable with her prejudices, thank you, with the way she had constructed her worldview. And she thought, and she said this directly, she thought not even Jesus had the power to alter that in her life. That's how she put it. In my pondering over the years, what has become quite clear is that all of us suffer from this tendency to greater or lesser degrees, this tendency to draw tribal boundaries concerning the saved and the damned, the in and the out, those that deserve our compassionate regard and those that don't, and so forth. Although I'm guessing that few of us sitting here, if asked, would consider ourselves closed-minded. 
Still, race, ethnicity, occupation, education, gender, marital state, orientation, political ideologies, and, of course, religious orthodoxies are not only expressions of difference among us, but often deployed as powerful weapons of exclusion. Surely this human weakness lies close to the heart of most of the world's agony and violence. Now, I would be the first among us to claim that all so-called truths are not equal, that some things are truer than others, that some expressed truths are in fact false and ought to be exposed as such. I believe this strongly, even passionately. In part, that's why I am in this line of work. I believe that when I'm at my best, I'm in an occupation that helps uncover what is profoundly true. For instance, I find the deepest truths in the witness of Jesus. And I'm committed to understanding and proclaiming this with greater depth and maturity as the years advance. I recognize that I will never be over getting better at peeling the onion on this set of truths. But at the same time, I also recognize that this requires a kind of militant humility of approach. Being on the lookout for truth means being careful to hold it lightly. After all, if you open yourselves up to something that is new in your life, what is necessary is to let something go that was old and less true. So, again, it's important to hold truth lightly. Hold it with a certain humility, lest one forgets that despite disagreements, all of us remain linked in ways that transcend our differences. The church has always been at its worst when it has weaponized its doctrines. In our gospel lesson today, the disciples approach Jesus with this report. Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now there's a lot of irony in this. They were, this guy was evidently doing something useful that was consistent with what they were doing. <laughs> right? But still they say to Jesus, should we stop him because, what? He isn't one of us. It is tremendously current, right? Of the moment, isn't it? This human tendency. Jesus answered, do not stop him. Whoever is not against us is for us. And again, you see the humanity in the disciples. You see how they so quickly move to exclude this fellow, to put him down, keep him out, because he wasn't, you know, <laughs> he wasn't in the in group around Jesus. Jesus thought otherwise, and in his words, we catch a glimpse of what it means for us to be curative and life-giving agents in the world. 
we catch a glimpse of a larger truth which involves a spirit of inclusion, of hospitality. As we say here at Christ Church, dynamic hospitality. We also realize this, this from the same exchange that God's purposes are always larger than our definitions. This is an important truth that we forget. God is always bigger than our last thought. Always. He's always bigger than our last pronouncement. He's always bigger than our last creed. Always. Always. It's a, that's just, that's truth. <laughs> God is always bigger. Godly loving compassion exists in other guises and arenas beyond our comfort zones. Now the history of Christianity is littered with failure on this point. It's important to say this. Once it found alignment with worldly power, the wisdom of inclusion was lost from time to time amid the rubble of human self-aggrandizement, often to very deadly effect. Still, the early church struggled to learn Jesus' lesson. Paul wrote that in God's kingdom there was no distinguishing between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And the church you know, stumbled into accepting this as the logical outcome of Jesus' witness. There was no prior condition that he excluded anyone from God's love. That said, over the centuries, we found all, we Christians, that is, found all sorts of reasons to parse the human family into hierarchies of value. It is so very, very hard to let go of that. The story of Esther we heard read earlier is the story of how one race of people treated another race of people. You didn't hear the whole sweep of it. But the bad guy wanted to wipe out the Jews. This story becomes the basis of the Jewish holiday purium. It's a story about deadly human arrogance, injustice and abuse of power and about issues of inclusion and exclusion. This predates our own time by 2,500 years. The majority of those subsequent years steeped in the teachings of Christ with his followers now numbering in excess of two billion and still the last century is remembered as the bloodiest in human history. This is among the most difficult lessons for us to grab onto and embody. The Christian difference with the world does not mean that we think the world is more evil than us. That those outside, or those inside the church are redeemed and the world is fallen. Instead, the mature Christian believes the world and the church are both fallen, redeemed by the cross of Christ. That's the language we use here. We are all held by our Creator God. It's just that when at its best, the church seeks to know this and remember this and then attempts to live in light of that knowledge. The old cliche rings true. We're all in the same boat. If that's true, then the difference between them and us begins to evaporate 
with wisdom born from humility. And it will cause us to be on the lookout for evidence of God's activity in the world regardless of the garb it wears, the language it speaks, or the temples it inhabits. We should be more than glad to find friends and comrades in the most unlikely of places. For in such manner, God's transcending purposes are advanced. See if this is true for you. Over the years, I have often marveled at the fact that a certain friend who is a rabbi or an imam or an agnostic expresses the nature of love in a way that is often more complete, more fulsome, more holy than many professed Christians that I know. Sometimes even myself. We say God is love and yet at times we see evidence of love somewhere other than within the confines of walls like this. There's great holiness in embracing the truth in that. It does not negate what we're attempting to do because as I said earlier, within these walls, we are as fallen as those outside these walls. But when at our best, we are attempting to grow day by day more and more into the likeness of our mentor, into the likeness of Christ. And we encourage one another, help one another, confess to one another our weakness, our vulnerability, and as our desire to grow ever closer to what God intended in the first place. You and I, we together, have a tremendous opportunity in helping each other in this way. It's why we gather in part. An important reason, a powerful reason, Amen.